Good morning. My name is Louis Soares. I'm the director of the Economic Mobility Program here at the Center for American Progress. And I'm sure most of you know us as CAP, so I'll, I'll continue that acronym as we go through the session. Um, I'll be your moderator for today's event. One quick administrative note, um, our closing speaker wasn't able to make it today. He was called away on a family emergency, uh, Tom Perez, who is the uh, Commissioner of Labor for the State of Maryland. So we, uh, we hope everything goes well there, but I just want to let folks know that. Um, first, I want to thank everyone for joining us um, for CAP to release its first set of papers in the higher education policy space. We're very excited about it. And I want to take a, uh, so I want to take a moment to thank the authors that contributed papers, the speakers that we'll hear today, and panelists. Um, also, the uh, economics team here and the editorial policy team here for the help in putting the paper together. And single out particularly um, Luke Reidenbach, who is uh, an amazing assistant for the, uh, the policy team, and Chris Mazio, who is my, my co-author on the policy paper we're, rele we're releasing today. The, today is really a beginning of a journey for CAP. Um, to which we hope to bring the organization's trademark boldness that we're, we're well known for, but also a humble ear to the colleagues and organizations that already provide such thoughtful leadership in the post-secondary education space. Um, we're also fortunate to begin the journey with the uh, recent reauthorization of the Higher Education, uh, the Higher Ed Act. Um, congressional leadership in uh, increasing Pell Grants and making them more flexible for needy students, simplifying the federal financial aid process, and improving the uh, K-12 through academic preparation, and also um, improving the TRIO and GEAR UP programs, which are we have some notes about in our various policy papers, are powerful steps for enhancing the effectiveness of the post-secondary system. In many ways, the journey began for CAP with the question of effectiveness. Last March, we held a forum on post-secondary policy. And the, 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 our express purpose was to look at the post-secondary system from a point of view of persistence and success, and also to find a way to align any work that we might do in higher ed policy with our economic strategy. Um, it's, uh, the strategy is embodied in our paper, um, Progressive Growth, Transforming the America, America's Economy Through Clean Energy, Innovation, and Opportunity. Today, we're releasing the, f the first two of those commission papers, um, a federal agenda for promoting student success and degree completion by uh, Sarah Goldrick-Rab from the University of Wisconsin and Yasipa Roxa from the University of Virginia, and um, College for All, the Labor Market for College-Educated Workers by Paul Osterman of MIT. We're releasing those in conjunction with uh, a policy paper called College-Ready Students, Student-Ready Colleges, Enhancing Degree Completion Through Student Empowerment and Systems Change. The policy paper is in part uh, based on the commission papers, um, the discussion at the forum last March, our own progressive values, and in aligning to our economic strategy. We've got we'll over the next few months. We we'll release a s the remaining the remainder in the series of the policy papers: uh, one on academic preparation, another on federal access policies another on connecting um, high school dropouts to post-secondary education, and then finally uh, one on uh, creating college-going culture. And you'll see these referenced in the policy paper that uh, if you pick it up outside. We have a great lineup today, but I want to start with providing some, some human context for the policy discussion today. Um, so we know a statistic that we, we used in our, our invitation that America has dropped from third to 10th 
in education attainment for 25 to 34 year olds over the last 10 years. And the series of papers will look at that reality from different points of view and provide their own context. Um, what I'd like to do is share a personal story uh, about my niece Tiffany and uh, to help us put the human face on some of the statistics that we talk about. So Tiffany is uh, Tiffany Maduris. She's 24 years old. She lives in Bristol, Rhode Island. Uh, she was a B minus uh, average in high school and has a high school degree. For the last six years, she's been floating around two community colleges. She uh, pursuing a nursing degree, um, never completely finished. Uh, she left, came back, and pursued a certificate in medical office management, which she did receive. Uh, tried then to apply to five additional nursing programs, was not successful. Finally, in frustration at, uh, in pursuing that dream, she enrolled in a uh, public four-year institution to study business management. During this whole time, this journey, she worked either part or full-time in the medical field. Uh, she invested her parents' money and increasingly her own money in, uh, in her education and received both federal and state grants. Um, so we've got a picture of an average but persistent student who's effectively been in the U.S. post-secondary system for six years with no credential to show for it. No, no traditional credential in terms of an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. She's applied to eight post-secondary institutions, uh, paid countless application transferred admission administrative fees, had moderate to little guidance in terms of setting goals for herself, um, understanding the resources that were available, or also more long-term, the return on investment she might get for the particular educational path she chose. While it's a frustrating personal story, it's also an all-too-common one. Millions of Americans like Tiffany are not optimizing their college experience, quite simply because our decentralized supply chain for delivering post-secondary education services is not so much designed to help her successfully complete college as to successfully get into college. Tiffany and millions like her are the human face on the statistics we talk about all the time. Stagnant degree completion, you know, increased time to degree, uh, lack of academic preparation, and some of the very historic disparities and serious disparities we have along racial, ethnic, and income lines. And also some more novel uh, uh, metrics like student mobility. Students transfer more now. How does that affect attainment? Or the combination of work and learning. Where so we've seen an increase in that over the last 30 years. How does that affect attainment? In our view, these young adults are effectively changing the shape of demand for post-secondary services. They're, these students are seeking more customized education solutions for their, to meet their work, life, and learning needs. They don't necessarily fit into neat two- and four-year boxes. In our policy paper, CAP puts forth a vision of a post-secondary system that can be effective given that changing shape of demand. It's built on a foundation of student empowerment, uh, adaptable colleges and universities, and enabling public policies. This combination can deliver quality, flexible learning experiences across institutions. The paper is sometimes aspirational, sometimes tactical, sometimes focused on action, and sometimes focused on the need for more research and experimentation. It sets a bold goal for increasing the number of young adults uh, with post-secondary credentials uh, over a 20-year period. 
suggests a cross-agency approach based at the National Economic Council to put post-secondary degree completion at the top of our national economic agenda. Wouldn't it be great if post-secondary completion rates had the same visibility in our economic dialogue as the federal funds rate, which we hear a lot about these days? It also suggests an enhanced role for federal officials that moves beyond that of a program funder or a rule maker into that of a network orchestrator. And finally, in six, discrete, in six policy areas, we have some recommendations. First, to help students be more college ready, we want to invest in preparation for college in high school and beyond. Uh, we want to provide more flexible and transparent financial assistance through the student aid program. They also want to help develop better and more widely available information about quality in schooling. To help colleges be more student ready, we want to invest in their, we want to build their capacity to change practices and develop new approaches to, for student success, create more seamless alignment across the secondary and post-secondary education systems and other systems as well, including the workforce system. And finally, we want to enhance accountability by measuring learning and success in schools and colleges. With this paper, we're hoping to lay a foundation, both for policies and further research, that will empower students to build customized learning experiences and help universities invest in their capabilities to deliver those experiences. To start off our conversation today, I want to introduce uh, Jim Ciccone to provide some opening remarks. Jim is the Senior Executive Vice President for External and Legislative Affairs for AT&T. He's responsible for the Public Policy Organization, and he also serves as the Chair of the AT&T Foundation. Jim. Good morning. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the Center for American Progress, uh, my friend John Podesta, and. Uh, and Lewis uh, uh, and all your colleagues for inviting me here this morning and frankly for, for holding this uh, important forum. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really honored to be here to, to join with uh, some of the true thought leaders uh, in the education community uh, discuss one of the greatest problems facing our nation and that is the need to ensure that America's education system is supporting and empowering students so they can succeed in school, in their careers, and in their life. I don't need to tell any of you in this room today that the massive challenges facing our education system are as multifaceted as the solutions to address them. It will take all of us, educators, policymakers, business leaders, and countless others to work together to help bring about the desperately needed change and reform. All of you gathered here today know the statistics are pretty startling that we're facing. Approximately one-third of the students who enter ninth grade each year drop out of high school. Another third of students graduate without the knowledge and skills necessary for success in college or the workplace. The jobless rate for Americans with less than a high school education is 60% higher than for other workers. And according to the Alliance for Excellent Ex Education, if students of color graduated at the same rate as white students, that single fact alone could add $310 billion to the American economy by the year 2020. Now, we, we all have to shake our heads at these types of statistics. If we hope to stay competitive in a globalized economy, these are truly frightening numbers. We also have to resolve to act now before it's too late. At AT&T, we recognize that perhaps the best way we can start to make a difference as a company is if we focus on one specific challenge. And so that's what we're doing. We're focusing on this challenge of the dropout rate, 
high school success workforce readiness uh, in order to try to make a difference there. We're committing our resources to the, this initiative for the same reasons the CAP has identified as the driving force for today's dialogue. If we don't invest in our nation and our children, if we can't ensure our children complete high school, these children will face a lifetime of consequences, consequences that will also affect their families, local communities, businesses, and ultimately our national prosperity and competitiveness. Each child deserves the best chance to succeed. Now, each person in this room knows that America is the leading economy in the world and the potential of our citizens and our country is limitless. But we also need to look at what the future may hold. America's future global competitiveness will not be determined by our present-day financial strength, by our natural resources, or the size of our economy. Those things are all important, but education, we feel, will be the critical factor in whether we rise to the challenge of a globalized economy and succeed as a nation. Now, at AT&T, we recognize the magnitude of the crisis, and we, and we feel strongly that all of us need to do our part. Our Aspire initiative, that's what we've named it, launched in April of this year. It's our biggest and most significant education initiative in our more than 130-year history. We're committing $100 million over the next four years to help address this critical issue. A part of our funding will support grants to schools and nonprofit organizations that are focused on high school success for at-risk students. We're also helping to underwrite 100 community dropout prevention summits across the country. But this philanthropic work isn't just about funding programs. Throughout the company, employees from the chairman to service representatives are personally committed to helping the next generation aspire to do great things. So over the next five years, we're partnering with Junior Achievement to offer 100,000 students the opportunity to job shadow with AT&T employees. Now, job shadowing is a proven way, we feel, to improve high school success. According to Junior Achievement, 75% of students participating in job shadowing report that the program increased their desire to stay in school. I have to tell you that um, our CEO, Randall Stevenson, actually uh, was shadowed uh, uh, a month or two ago uh, by a local student in San Antonio, a uh, high school student. Um, and uh, the high school student certainly came away feeling, feeling great about the experience, but Randall came away feeling great about the experience. He thought it was one of the neatest things he told me he'd ever done. And, uh, and he stayed in touch with this student and, and uh, actually uh, counseling on career advice, things of this nature. So th th this is the type of program I think th that can succeed. We fully realize, though, that there's no magic one-size-fits-all solution to these challenges. The AT&T Aspire Initiative is just one part, we understand, of a much larger collective effort that's needed to solve this crisis. The community involvement from all sectors, from education to business thought leaders to policymakers, is needed to produce results. Partnerships like the one, one between CAP and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are emblematic of the type of collective effort we need to undertake. As you know, John Podesta and Tom Donahue, the, the head of the chamber, have joined together traveling around the country to explore the root causes of our education crisis in order to begin to identify solutions. This partnership between John and Tom underscores the fact that education and, uh, reform is not a D or an R issue. We all have to come together to address this growing problem. So by working together, we can ensure that America remains a leader in the global economy and will help ensure that our youth can compete at full velocity for years to come. But even more than that, we must help students succeed, not just in school, but in life, because it's the right thing to do. Helping them graduate from high school and from any college and gain the skills they need will not only aid them in getting good jobs, 
We give them options to help control their futures so they can make choices that benefit themselves, their families, and their communities. At AT&T, we're proud of the great work our foundation, our employees are doing to help a younger generation prepare to become the country's next generation of leaders. We're hopeful we can make a modest contribution to addressing the need for education reform. We're in this for the long haul, too. We recognize this is one of the challenges and problems our country has seen growing for several decades now. And, and, uh, and, and frankly, it's a frustration to, to many of us that, that we haven't been able to come together to act. To, to deal with this problem instead of just watching it grow worse. And so it's really going to take all of us pulling together to, to, to make a difference and, and finally tackle the, the major challenges of reform. As you know, the strength of our nation has always been found uh, in our people. And, and more than that, by our people being able to come together, make the necessary compromises in order to achieve reform uh, and move the country forward. That's what we feel is needed here. We're trying to make our small contribution to that. Um, and, and we're very, very uh, interested in, and uh, supportive of the efforts that CAP and others are making to try to bring people together toward a common framework of solutions. So I, I thank you again for inviting us here today uh, uh, and, uh, and wish you success with the conference. Okay, we're going to move right along to the presentation of our first commission paper. Uh, I just want to introduce the author, Paul Osterman. Paul is the Nanyang Technical University Professor of Human Resources and Management at, MIT, at the MIT Sloan School of Management, as well as a member of the Department of Urban Planning at MIT. From July 2003 to June 2007, he also served as a Deputy Dean at the Sloan School. Paul? This water is just going to sit here till someone drinks it. Is that this? <laughs> what the idea? So I, I'm I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. I actually I said to Lewis that I couldn't believe that anybody would come to an event in Washington in the middle of August. <laughs> so get a life. <laughs> but anyway, that 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 said, I'm, I, I am pleased to be here. Obviously, this is a very important topic. Uh, the question that my paper is about is to, to ask and try and answer the question about whether there is an economic case for a very substantial expansion in access to higher education. Now, at first glance, you all, everyone thinks they know the answer to that, right? Get a job, go to school, stay in school, kid, get a job. And in fact, at the end of the day, I'm going to tell you that what you already thought you knew was right. But uh, being, uh, it's actually a serious question. There's serious complications in trying to answer the question. And I'm going to kind of work through the logic of it. And as we work through the logic of it, hopefully you'll, you'll learn something beyond uh, simply a yes or no, yes, send more kids to college kind of thing. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start off by spending a little time trying to understand what we mean when we talk about a college job. Because if you read the literature on this topic, if you read the, both the academic literature on the topic, but also the kind of policy literature, the, the memos and po position papers that float around, you just see a lot of references to there's going to be more college jobs, we, we need to educate more people, the demand for college is growing. But there's very little, I think, very little clear thinking about what we mean by a college job. Right? We think we know that, a, that 
a PhD driving a taxi job, a taxi, there's something wrong with that, but maybe there's not, right? <laughs> in fact, if you knew a lot of PhDs, you might think that the best thing they could do is to drive. <laughs> you could say that to some of my colleagues. But, but we really need to think through in kind of a rigorous way what we need mean by a college job. I'm then going to talk a very briefly about the wage data, because the reason everybody thinks they know the answer to this question is because of what the wage data show, the wage advantages of kids who go to college versus the ones who don't. But in fact, the wage data is a little more textured and a little more complicated than you might think. I'll turn from the wage data to kind of more direct evidence about the demand for college in the labor market, and then I'll finish up. Now, before I kind of march, th and, and even though I am a PhD and therefore I probably should be driving a taxi, um, I, I want you to know I'm also under con somewhat under control. I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes. I mean, I will stop. <laughs> so you can calm down. It, it, it will end at some point. Um, before I kind of do this, though, I want to be very clear that the case, in my view, the case for expanding access to higher education is not just an economic case. I'm going to talk about the economics of it. But people have better lives if they have more education, right? I mean, they have better lives. People are better citizens if they have more education. We know that. We know, for example, that voting participation rates are positively correlated with, with education, even after you control for selection and self-selection and so on. There's a overwhelming equity case. The correlation between race and higher education is stunning, as you just heard, and the correlation between family income and access to higher education is stunning. There's a strong, strong equity case. So there are multiple grounds for wanting to expand access to higher education, not just what does the labor market need. Now, I think it's very, yeah, I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about what does the labor market need, but I think it's very important to keep in mind that that's not the whole story. Okay, so what's a college job? When we say the demand for college jobs is growing or declining, what do we mean? So as I said, we have this kind of image, right? I studied French in college. I have a very refined sensibility. I know what the subjunctive is, and oh my God, you know, I'm doing, you know, I'm working at McDonald's pressing the, the hamburger button. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm not in a college job. But that's romantic, right? That's not the reality. The reality is that most jobs in the economy can be done by college people, and most jobs in the economy can be done by people without college education. You may need more of those people, or they may not do them as well, but it can be done. So how do we know if a job is a college job? So a way to think about this is as follows. There's a ratio of high school, let's say high school to college wages. Let's say, f just for the sake of argument, that if I have a college degree today, I'm making 30% more than if I had a high school degree. And in a given job, there's also a ratio of productivity. Let's say if I have a college degree, I'm 30% more productive than if I had a high school degree in that job. I'm producing that much more. Okay. Well, that's the marginal point, right? That's the point at which an employer is indifferent between whether they hi hire a college kid or a high school kid. If the college person is 31%, 32%, 35% more productive, then at that wage relationship, it's a college job. I want to have a college kid because I'm getting more productivity than the wage and then, then I'm paying an extra wages. And if the college person is only 20% more productive, I want a high school kid because I'm not getting enough productivity to justify it. 
the extra wages. So the college job is the job for whom the boost in productivity is more than the boost in wages. I mean, that, that's what it is. And the point, though, is that that point changes over time with technology. So, for example, we introduce in manufacturing statistical process controls. So now the, the assembly line worker, he or she is now responsible for some quality issues. Well, in the past, the high school kid was perfectly productive in that job, say only 10% less productive than the college kid. But now that the kid is asked to do some elementary statistical and analytical work, why are there defects, how do we fix those defects, that high school kid is 40% less productive. It's become a college job. So technology moves that boundary. It changes when the high school kid and the college kid is more or less productive. I should point out that a college person could be more productive driving a taxi, right? I mean, if gas costs $4 a gallon, figuring out the optimal route between here and the airport, and, you know, I mean, that may require analytical work. And so the college kid could be more productive. Driving a taxi could be a college job. So that's what's going on, right? It's where that boundary is in terms of relative productivity and relative wages. Now, how do we know if we want to invest, in just staying at this abstract level for a minute, how do we know if we want to invest and get more college kids out there? How do we know if the economy is demanding it? What's the kind of right cost-benefit way of thinking about it? Well, if the college kid is 30% more productive, and that we can then figure out what that means in terms of value of output produced over his or her working life, and it costs less than that to put him or her through school, right, tuition, capital expenses, and all that, then let's get more college people. And if the college kid is much, if the, if the productivity gain is below the cost of the education, let's not. Okay? So that, that kind of framework seems to me to be a useful way of putting some content on the idea of it's a college job. So we're moving away from this romantic kind of, I studied Shakespeare, I shouldn't be doing this, to a much more kind of thoughtful way of thinking about it. Okay. Now, having kind of convinced you that you never in your entire life want to study economics, <laughs> at least for me, let me move into some more concrete stuff. So what's the case that we should have more college kids out there, that we need to expand America's investment in college education? Well, the first case, the prima facie case, the case everybody talks about is the wage data. So whereas in 1980, college kids earned about 40% more than high school kids, in 2005, they earned about 70% more. I mean, the wage and, and that's despite an increase in, in the number of people who are going to college. So even though the supply is increasing, it looks like demand was increasing even more rapidly because wages, the wage gap grew. And that's what's in everybody's mind about this. And you think I should now just sit, sit down and shut up. But in fact, the wage story is a little more texture than that. First, in the last more than dec half decade, it turns out that all of the college wage differential, the growth in that, has been for people with advanced degrees, not with BAs. It looks like the advantage to a BA or an AA relative to high school has stag is flat. 
And that raises a significant question about whether there's an ongoing demand, increasing demand for people with college education. The MBAs, the lawyers, and so on, they're doing very well, thank you. But that's not who, I mean, God knows we need more lawyers. We all agree on that, I'm sure. But that's not what we're really talking about, right? We're talking about other levels of education. And, and that wage differential appears to be f stagnating. So that's one worry about the, what's going on. The second worry about what's going on is whether the wage advantage really reflects a productivity advantage or whether it reflects some kind of signaling that's going on, right? Kids who go to college are intrinsic, maybe, I'm not asserting this, may be intrinsically better workers, they may be brighter, they may be able to, s they may have learned to sit still and shut up for longer periods of time. There may be signaling personality characteristics that has nothing to do with what they're learning in school. And if we somehow got everybody into college, then employers would have to find some other sorting selecting mechanism. They do more interviews or they do something. College is just a sorting and selecting mechanism. It's not really increasing people's skills. That's a serious hypothesis. That's a serious question. It's not a, it's not a joke. And so with that question in mind, and also with that flatness in the wage issue in mind, it's important, I think, to pursue the question of whether we have more direct evidence than just the wage data, better evidence than the wage data, that the demand for college-level skills are growing, or to put it differently, as I said before, that the productivity advantages to going to college are increasing to grow. So, excuse me, I'm now going to march through basically three or four pieces of evidence. I'm first going to talk about occupational projections. I'm then going to talk about direct observations of firms and their production. And then I'm going to talk about a natural, a very significant natural experiment that took place on this. And then I'll shut up. Okay. Occupational projections. You're all familiar with this, right? So the Bureau of Labor Statistics produces projections on the future occupational distribution of the workforce. And in principle, one could take those projections and map them onto education requirements and know whether we're going to need more college kids. Now, I'm going to tell you what the complications of that are in a second. I want to make one point that probably most of you know, but th it's important, to, I think, to make this point about these projections. You often hear the case, the argument made, that kind of middle-level skills are being w wiped out of the economy by technical change. That we're becoming kind of bimodal. A lot of, lot of low-level skill jobs and a lot of high-level skill jobs with the middle disappearing. And that case is made by comparing the bar charts, say, of the occupational distribution in the year 2006 with the bar charts of the occupational distribution in the year 2016. And lo and behold, the jobs that appear to be the middle jobs, say blue-collar jobs, that bar is significantly lower. And therefore, you know, no point in training for these middle jobs anymore. Well, what that overlooks, and I'm sure you know this, but what that overlooks is a huge demand for replacement jobs. So just to kind of give you a sense of that, if you look at production occupations, right, the quintessential blue-collar job, between 2006 and 2016, in the BLS projections, there's a net loss of 500,000 of those jobs. There'll be 500,000 fewer production jobs. But there'll be over 2 million of those people hired 
in that same period because people my age, I'm, I'm young, but people my age are retiring. I'm young, that was also a joke. Um, people my age are retiring, right? And so even though the, number, the net number at the end of the period is lower, there's huge replacement demand. And that's important for our discussion. Because when you're training people, when you're asking is there a demand for these middle-level jobs, which you could translate into community college jobs, which I'll talk about in a second, there is substantial demand, even though that bar chart is getting, the bar itself is getting lower. So don't fall for the end of the middle, declining middle rhetoric. I think that's an overstatement. Okay, so what do the BLS projections show? They project, the BLS goes through a couple steps, right? Through a combination of art and science, they project the occupational distribution 10 years out. And then through another combination of art and science, they map education requirements onto that, and they ask, will the economy need more education in the future? And when you go through that exercise, you show a very modest increase in the demand for education. So by one measure, to give you a sense of the modesty of this, by, by, one, by one measure here uh, of this, if I can find my number here, the, the demand for college, by that I mean, and I'll talk about this in a second, community college or four-year college, jobs in 2006, 28% of the economy required those, that level of education. In the year 2016, it was 30%. So a modest increase, according to the BLS projections. Now, those projections, however, need to be taken with a grain of salt. Notice I said combination of art and science. There's a lot of art. There's a lot of estimation. In the discussion, if you want to, there, if there are people here in this room from the BLS or from the Department of Labor who know this better than I do, we can talk about it. But there's a series of estimates and assumptions made. Particularly, I think that one of the key things is that all jobs are counted. Part-time youth teenage labor market jobs are counted in those numbers. If you limit yourself to the adult labor force, for example, you get a larger demand for college education. So the lesson from the BLS is a modest increase in demand. The five minutes. That's tough. The, I, even though I promised I was good. Uh, the other point I want to make about the BLS numbers is that they do point to the crucial role of community colleges. When we talk about college education, it's extremely important that we not think we're talking about only four-year degree institutions. Community colleges enroll about 40% of our students. They enroll people who are more economically, economically more struggling. They enroll a more racially diverse population. And the rate of return, if you complete a community college degree, or even a year of education, the rate of return is equivalent to a four-year school. The story of Tiffany points out what the real issue is about community colleges, which is retention and completion. But if you complete, there's a substantial rate of return. Okay, I'll move fast. Direct observation of firms. If you go out there and, and look at what firms are doing today, what the employers are doing in the economy today, what you see is a very substantial introduction of what I've called in other work high-performance work systems. Teams, quality systems, of what quality programs of one kind or another, TQM, statistical process control, ISO 9000, self-managed work teams, all of this stuff, which is both more productive, at least the higher levels of quality, and actually I'd like to say employees enjoy it more but unquestionably require higher levels of skill, unquestionably. And both direct observation and statistical analysis of comparing the workforce of employers that use these systems compared to the workforce of employers that don't 
demonstrate very clearly that these new work systems require higher levels of skill. So what you might call some combination of, of survey research plus anthropological research or ethnographic research of looking at employers and looking at what they need in their work systems today strongly points to higher levels of skill requirements. The natural experiment. This is going back some time, but if college education was just a signaling device, if it didn't really convey any productivity benefits, then if suddenly a large number of college graduates dropped out of the sky into our labor force, those folks wouldn't benefit because they would, they, they would, it would be as if the signal, that wasn't the signal, wasn't there, right? Those weren't, quote, normal college students. Well, the natural experiment is the open admissions program in the City University of New York in the 1970s, in which suddenly, suddenly, exogenously, huge numbers of people suddenly got college degrees that didn't get them in the pa didn't have them in the past, right? One year, m Mr. and Ms. X is not even a, considered college, quote college material. The next year, he or she is getting a college degree because of the open admission system. So this, then these people are not signaling in the same sense. But the research on, on open admissions shows that when these folks went through the system and got either their two-year or their four-year degree, they benefited economically to the same level as did, quote, regular college students. And a little bit off the point, but quite important, their children, th there was intergenerational benefit. Their children did better going into the future, too. So this natural experiment of college students dropping from the sky suggests that there's real benefits. It's also true that if you look across geographic areas, that cities with higher levels of college graduates do better, they grow faster, and they, re and they recover more quickly from economic shocks or recessions. Okay? So there's, this is the kind of range of evidence we need to look at beyond the wage data then. Occupational projections, observation of firms, the natural experiment of open admissions, geographic variation in, in education attainment and the consequences thereof. To finish, rem remember I said that the kind of real economic test of this is are the productivity gains of coming out of college larger than the cost of giving people college education? If we substantially increase the att college attainment in this country, would the extra boost and output that came out of that justify the costs of that. And the paper has some results on that. It, it reports some simulations of what would happen if we were to double the number of college graduates in the economy suddenly, what their wage levels would look like, what their productivity outcomes would be, and compares it in a back-of-the-envelope calculation to the costs of doing that. And it's clear, I think, that the benefits outweigh the costs. And by the way, doubling the number of college graduates in a country is an unattainable short-run, even medium-run achievement, so it's a conservative estimate. So I'm done. I do want to conclude, though, by, by coming back to that first point. The case for doing this is a much broader case than simply the economic one. It's important to be hard-headed, I think, and analytical about what the economic one is, which I've tried to be, but there's, a, there's an equity, there's a citizenship, there's a quality of life case beyond that. So thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. And um, Paul's paper was very exciting for us here, as it is one of those building blocks in helping us um, align work that we'll do now and in the future in higher ed policy and our 
uh, evolving economic strategy. Now on to our second paper, um, which we're also very excited about. Uh, uh, we think that uh, Sarah and Yasuba did a great job. Um, the second paper is titled A Federal Agenda for Promoting uh, Student Success and Degree Completion. And uh, one of the co-authors, Yasuba Roxa, is going to present it. Yasuba is the Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia with a courtesy appointment in the Curry School of Education. She was born and raised in Croatia. She received her PhD from New York University in 2006 and a BA summa cum laude from Mount Holyoke College in 2000. Her research encompasses a wide range of issues concerning social inequality with a specific focus on educational stratification. So, uh, Yasupa. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you for uh, having us here this morning. We very much appreciate the opportunity to share our uh, thoughts on kind of where do we go next. I think Paul has hopefully convinced you that we need to get more students to finish higher education, and we're going to try to make a case to you as to how we think that should be done or could be done. Um, Sarah, unfortunately, couldn't join us this morning, so uh, I'm going to present the paper uh, on our behalf. Now... Nearly every child in America imagines that she will be a college graduate. And her ambitions are at least partly realistic if we look at the rates of high school completion and college entry. But the chances that she will finish are actually a whole lot less than might be expected. Okay? Um, less than about 60% of students who enter four-year institutions earn bachelor's degrees. And only about one-fourth of community college students complete either an associate or bachelor's degree in six years. Okay? So completion rates are fairly low. And we would argue stagnating, although we can have a longer discussion about that later. Also, we would say that even more troubling are the class differences in college completion. Okay? So if we look, for example, at beginning college students, about 40% of students from low-income families finish an AA or a BA in six years. But over 60% of students from high-income families finish those same credentials. Okay? Right? So we, ha we have major differences in who is completing higher education. Okay? We argue these trends are a cause for concern. Okay? And this is not only because the current Secretary of Education has called these completion rates uh, unacceptable, but more importantly because of the tremendous investments that we make in higher education, and that includes both fiscal and other investments, um, are not going to pay off unless students finish at least some college, okay? unless they actually attain some degree, um, uh, you know, some attainment. Moreover, we think from a philosophical perspective, um, we ought to be concerned about the message we are sending to our children if we encourage access but do nothing to help them actually complete that education. Um, so the federal government has long played a role in promoting access to higher education, largely through financial aid policies. But Washington pays a whole lot less attention about completion. Okay? There's almost an assumption that if you get into college, somehow you're also going to complete a degree, and that assumption is clearly false. Oops. Uh, heard Tiffany's story and many others that we know of who enter higher education, stay in higher education for a reasonably long amount of time, and leave higher education without actually attaining a degree, either a two-year or a four-year. And so we argue that the federal government needs to broaden its role in higher education uh, by taking steps to support states and post-secondary institutions in their efforts to help more college students complete their education. How should we do that? 
and what should we do? We propose a goal that we believe is achievable, which is that we should increase the production of college credentials of value while decreasing inequalities in who receives those credentials. So that is our challenge that we put forth as a goal that we need to achieve. It's important to note there are two underlying principles to this goal. The first one is that we need to focus on students and the success of students. Now this may seem obvious, um, but it's actually not the current focus. Okay, the current focus of policy discussions and policy agendas is to focus on institutions. Um, and we would suggest that this focus on institutions rather than on students has led to what we think is too much emphasis on institutional autonomy. Okay? Now certainly many innovations in American higher education would not be there if schools did not have the flexibility and autonomy in decision making, but innovation and diversity among the schools is acceptable only to the extent that it democratizes opportunities and does not stratify them. Um, so you know, we argue that the goals of diversity, equality, and autonomy are best achieved when educational institutions work toward a convergence in practices rather than standardization of practices. So there are three, the four C's. What this means is that the efforts to achieve higher levels of attainment are coordinated among educational actors using standards and practices that are compatible and motivated by a common goal. Now, there are numerous issues in higher education. There are numerous challenges on both supply side and demand side of higher education. And policymakers um, cannot take on all of those challenges at the same time. And we cannot talk about all of them in one paper. So we're going to focus on five areas that we believe need to, uh, that we need to focus on and that uh, the federal government could get involved in. The first issue is that of resources. Okay? Resources for higher education are inequitably distributed. Okay? The open door institutions that have the highest levels of enrollment, like community colleges, also have roughly half the resources and subsidies of four-year public universities. Okay? Uh, moreover, as high school cohorts grow and state resources for higher education become more limited, public non-selective institutions, which already educate the majority of our students, actually are becoming quite crowded. Okay? And so what we end up seeing is that the completion rates and time to degree decrease at the top flagship, very selective public schools, but the opposite friend, trends are happening at the other end, which is at the non-selective institutions. The movement of a lot of students and a growing proportion of students into these non-selective institutions that are under-resourced and have low graduation rates are actually quite troubling. Um, the students that are more likely to attend these under-resourced schools, moreover, are also those who need education to actually stay in the middle class or even attain the middle class standard of living. So we argue that the federal government must intervene to provide funding to the institutions serving the majority of students who primarily attend non-selective public institutions and community colleges so that those institutions can provide an adequate education. So that's, even though we often focus on the selective schools and we like to talk a lot about selective students and selective schools and selective students, um, the majority of our students are in institutions that are under-resourced and federal government needs to intervene on their behalf. The next issue is that of transfer, okay, that we'd like to address. A large proportion of students today do not follow the traditional path, which is that you finish high school, go into four-year college and get your four-year year degree in four years. Okay, that doesn't happen. Students who begin in four-year schools often move institutions and attend multiple institutions on their way to a degree. Obviously, students who 
start in two-year schools and want to attain a four-year degree, they need to transfer. And so there's lots of mobility in higher education um, that you know, poses some challenges to how do we think about degree completion. The federal government so far has been largely silent on this issue of helping students in the transfer process. States have been much more involved. But we think the federal government can also play a role. One uh, thing we should think is the federal government needs to facilitate the development of common definitions of transfer as well as mandate data collection. Okay, if you look at the transfer literature, transfer rates vary from anywhere from anywhere of 25% to 61%, okay? Because it depends how you calculate who transfers. And so having that kind of a range and possibility of transfer rates, it's impossible to actually compare transfer rates or to talk about any kind of accountability um, system. Second, we think the federal government should provide incentives for institutions to improve transfer. Lots of community colleges are creative and doing lots of innovative programs um, and collaborations with four-year schools, and we think federal government should support those with seed grants. Third, we think the states um, and institutions need to try to simplify the transfer process. Okay? Um, lots of them now have articulation policies, but those articulation policies give a great degree of flexibility to individual schools in terms of agreeing what actually counts toward transfer. And independence is a cherished value in higher education and has you know, accomplished lots of great things. But independence in this case produces an incoherent approach to transfer in which students take a lot of courses that don't transfer and don't count toward degree which is why they stay in school, part of the reason they stay in school for a long time. Um, and federal government should play a role there in you know, doing several things. One is, for example, encouraging states to develop common course um, numbering systems such that all, for all institutions in the state, two years and four years, would use the same system and institutions, uh, and students could, could transfer those credits across institutions without uh, the bureaucracy that is in place now. The third is the one we all worry about and probably most of the time worry about, which is financial aspects of higher education. Okay. Uh, paying for college is a concern to everybody, for students from low family backgrounds and from those from uh, middle and high family backgrounds. And historically, the federal uh, aid policy, financial aid policy, um, has focused on the issue of access. Okay. So the, the great goal and the focus has been on how do we provide students resources to access higher education. Um, and in some ways, we would suggest the current financial aid policy may unintentionally actually discourage success. Um, so what should be done with the current financial aid policy? One that I think we all agree on, we need to simplify the process. Okay? Uh, besides a handful of financial aid counselors, most students and parents uh, do not actually understand the system. Okay? Um, the vast majority of general public doesn't know what opportunities exist, how to access various programs, um, what one should expect to receive, how funds are distributed, um, or, or any of the matters that fall into how does one obtain a financial aid and how much financial aid can one count on obtaining. Um, related to kind of needing a more a simpler process is that we need to provide families with accessible and detailed information um, about the opportunities for financial aid about what programs are available, about how aid is calculated and distributed over time. And in particular, students need to be made aware that their financial aid packages could change over the course of their study in higher education depending on their personal circumstances. Okay. The third is the issue that we believe the federal formula needs to exclude work. Okay. Um, right now, the current formula absorbs student uh, earnings 
very quickly, tax them at a very high rate. This either discourages students from work or at best punishes them afterwards okay, for working. Um, and also it means that it is possible for a student to receive Pell in a first year and then become Pell ineligible the second year because that student was working, even though work does not reduce their need for the Pell in any way. Okay. Um, and so, um, and while, you know, we may think that focusing simply on work, on studying, is the best way to go through higher education, I think the um, majority of the evidence right now suggests that some work, moderate work, is actually beneficial to degree completion. And so um, we think punishing students for work is actually not a very good uh, policy. Um, next, you know, we think institutions should make efforts to reduce uncertainty okay, um, by fixing student contributions to college costs across their stay in higher education because it is difficult for many students to make commitments to higher education without actually understanding what that will involve over a long period of time. Um, especially over the four years, and how much they will be expected to pay, not just next year or next fall, but actually over the f however many two or four years they intend to stay in higher education. Um, the Department of Education might consider the minimum requiring the institutions publish information indicating whether they participate in this kind of a program and whether they want to release this kind of information so that students and families could at least make decisions about whether this is important to them and whether they want to go to an institution that is clear on this issue of cost over time. Um, and finally, we think the financial aid policy should support academic course taking wherever and whenever students are able to engage in higher education. Okay? So this means making Pell Grant recipients, Pell Grant um, available during the summer as well as for less than half-time students. And um, I guess the good thing is seeing the, the new Higher Education Act, uh, they have implemented some of these policies or at least moved in that direction trying to simplify the financial aid process, allowing the Pell Grant to be used in the summer, et cetera. So I think we are making some progress in the right direction, um, but have a lot more work to do. Next to money, of course, comes academic preparation. Okay. Um, the tremendous growth in participation of students in higher education over the last 50 years was not accompanied by sufficient improvement in preparation. Okay. Um, if we look at college students today, many of them would not be eligible for higher education, would not be considered prepared for higher education you know, s several decades ago. Now, higher ed institutions could easily solve this problem by just increasing the bar, raising the bar, increasing the requirements for entry into higher education, but that would simply um, increase the gap that we already have between students from more or less privileged backgrounds. So that is not a solution. What we think is the solution is that we need to actually work on improving K-12 preparation and get students to be actually prepared to enter higher education. Now, this is, of course, a big K-12 issue and a K-12 agenda, um, but higher education has a stake in this issue because those are the students who will enter the higher education doors down the road. Um, so higher education ca can do a lots of things here. One thing we think in particular is to think about dual enrollment programs and broader those programs. We think that the evidence of dual enrollment programs is tentative but promising. Um, and think the federal government should support the continued expansion of dual enrollment programs. Okay. Um, in particular, states should be funded to create free dual enrollment programs, which employ fewer eligibility requirements and require students to take more than one college course. Okay. And why, they make, why we make these particular characteristics is because those are needed to make sure that disadvantaged students are getting the experience that they need and to benefit the most as they enter higher education. But even if we do improve K-12, which isn't going to happen overnight, which is going to take some time, 
um, still a number of students will enter higher education without being adequately prepared. Okay? And they will have to um, often enter remedial programs that will actually help them catch up and make up. S currently, the quality of remedial programs, uh, we would argue, is inadequate okay, or poor. And so one of the key things that need to um, happen is that the federal government needs to really fund the development and study of innovative practices in remedial education um, and require states to report on the enrollment and progression of their students in remedial education. Because students actually, we need to improve those programs and we need to make sure students in those programs actually continue on and finish their degrees, which doesn't currently happen often. Um, and finally, we think that the efforts to improve remedial education need to be coupled with a widespread, meaningful, and sustained academic advising. Okay. Um, institutions certainly should have autonomy in terms of uh, what they require and how they uh, advise their students, but all schools should have sufficient resources to devote time and attention to actually provide meaningful academic advising to all of their students. The final issue that we believe the federal government needs to think seriously about and get involved in is that of learning. Okay. Recent years have witnessed a widespread uh, a proliferation of interest in what students learn in higher education. But even though 66% of Americans believe that colleges are teaching students the important things they need to know, much evidence actually suggests that graduates are not very well prepared for the knowledge economy or at least a very substantial portion of them are not very well prepared for college economy. Moreover, there are major differences um, between students from more, or less family back from more and less privileged family backgrounds in what they learn, how much they learn um, in higher education. So in order to enhance learning, we believe the federal government should require that higher education institutions implement learning assessment mechanisms and report student progress. Um, existing pressures have already produced more concern and commitment from higher education leadership to, access, to both um, assess and improve learning, but these endeavors need to be really solidified. Um, and we want to also note the very important point that assessment needs to be done within a value-added framework, which means that we study what actually happens to students while they're in higher education, how much do they learn above and beyond what they came in with. Okay, so the progress, the enhancement is what we're actually interested in, how much gain uh, how much do they gain when they enter higher education? Um, second, we think that the federal government needs to alter the prestige structure uh, in higher education to improve the quality of teaching. Okay? The federal government currently provides a vast amount of resources for research, but there's a whole lot less emphasis and resources provided for teaching. Okay? So the grants for teaching, for uh, which would include development of me new methods, trying new teaching strategies, implementing creative and innovative approaches to fostering student learning. All of those need to be a prominent part of federal agenda if we want to improve learning for students in higher education. And finally, the most important role, arguably, that colleges play in, in uh, creating student success is actually by providing quality teaching. But faculty, professors, are given very few incentives to teach well or to learn how to teach. And um, which is often made in a case, you know, the case is made because of them for faculty autonomy and, and need for great researchers. Um, but we need to really improve the training of future faculty and um, current faculty and provide incentives for them to really teach well and improve the learning of our students in higher education. In summary, improving post-secondary outcomes is a national goal that will benefit all Americans both individually and collectively. 
the low degree completion rates and the gaps between more and less privileged groups of students exhibited by the current system are not a failure of a couple of institutions or a couple of states, but a failure of the system as a whole. Okay? And therefore, we believe the federal government needs to increase its involvement in higher education. Leadership from federal government is needed to provide adequate resources to communicate clear messages about the importance of college access as well as completion, as well as to collect better data to both asset, um, assess and monitor progress. We want to emphasize that the goal of the federal government should be to support, encourage, and reward states and schools that facilitate the success of their students. Okay? Again, the outcome of federal enrollment should not be a standardized set of practices, but a convergence of practices that are led by the common goal of helping students succeed in higher education. Autonomy should not be endorsed at a price of ineffectiveness and inequality. We all know the college costs are remarkably high. Only slightly over half of students finish higher education and succeed in getting a degree. And there are stark inequalities between students from more or less privileged backgrounds. Okay? Unless we deal with these inequalities and these issues, the differences in educational attainment will be carried on into the labor market and transmitted from generation to generation. And we're going to face the inequality challenges for many years to come. Therefore, we believe that confronting this challenge of dealing with higher education completion as well as the gaps in completion is both substantial and urgent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jasper. That was great. It was actually um, Sarah and Jasper's paper that made us take a look at the, or inspired us to take a look at the network management literature as a different, um, a different metaphor for how federal policymakers could think about um, optimizing the value of the post-secondary system, as opposed to, kind of, the idea would be having a policy, a policy of goals and networks, not a policy of programs and rules. And so thank you for that. And, but the other papers also added context to that in terms of looking at di the way different groups of folks, for example, high school dropouts, do or don't connect to post-secondary education. We're going to move to our panel discussion next. And I would like to introduce uh, our two panelists and just have them come up as I, I, as I introduce them. And then we'll have uh, Yasipa and Paul join them on the, uh, on the platform. Uh, our first panelist is Kevin Carey. He is the Policy Director of the Education Sector, an independent think tank here in D.C. He has previously worked on education and finance policy for the state legislature and governor of Indiana, as well as, the, as other D.C.-based think tanks, including the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities and the Education Trust. He writes a bi-monthly column for Inside Higher Education and blogs about K-12 and higher education at The Quick and the Ed. Kevin, come on up. And our other panelist is uh, Anthony Carnavalli. He is the director of the Global Institute on Education and the Economy at Georgetown University. Prior to that, he was vice president for public leadership at the Education Testing Service and served as a senior staff member in both houses of Congress and as a presidential appointee to various committees, boards, commissions, and three U.S. Three, three US president administrations. Tony, come on up, please. And uh, we'll save our applause for later. Uh, Yosef and Paul, if you, would, if you would join us. What I'd like to do is just give um, Tony and Kevin five minutes each to uh, comment on what they've heard so far. Uh, 
on the policy paper and on Paul and Yosef's comments. And then we'll have a discussion. And then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. I think I'm actually going to stand. I think since I'll be, I'll answer questions also, but since I'm in a moderator's role. So, Kevin, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, thanks, and, and thanks for having me here. Um, I, I enjoyed both papers a lot. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Osterman's paper really provides a lot of new context to a, a measure that is seems to be kind of bubbling up in the conversation, the, this question of the wage differential between college graduates and non-college graduates, and is it going up and is it going down? And and it's, it's starting to take on some, uh, some resonance, particularly, I think, within the progressive community as we think about, about priorities and emphasis. Do we need to continue to push on education, or are our challenges more uh, labor-related? Um, I think his, his work provides a, an awful lot of additional kind of ways of looking at that. Um, however, <coughs> uh, Tony Carnevale is a, an expert labor economist, and I am not. And so I'm going to leave it to him to offer most of the comments on on uh, Dr. Osterman's paper. Um, as to the sort of the more policy-oriented paper that uh, Sarah and Yasefa put together, um, it's very good. I mean, I would just say if there are, <coughs> if there are uh, uh, Hill staffers, journalists, think tank folks out here in the audience today, you could basically take their paper, put it in your drawer, and, and fake your way as a higher ed policy expert for months, if not years, just by kind of reading it and, and, and pulling off the recommendations. Um, and so, uh, really, I, I want to congratulate you. It's, it's very thorough. It's concise. It really uh, lays out, I think, a, a comprehensive agenda. Um, and that's its virtue. You know, the, it talks about broadening the, the, the federal agenda. And, and really, um, when it comes to higher education policy, this is a one-issue town. Uh, everything is about cost. And it's, un, it's, it's, it's understandable why. I mean, basically, college has doubled in price over the last 20 years after adjusting for inflation. Um, it's one of the few places where politicians can really dial into middle and upper middle class anxiety. It's something everyone, whether you're Republican or Democrat, everybody's kind of worried about. They're concerned. Um, it's a way for them to, to come to these voters and say, I'm, I'm here to help you. And yet, I, you know, I'm struck by the fact that the, uh, the Higher Education Act, which just finished a few weeks ago, five years in the making, um, people on both sides of the aisle said, this is the thing we're worried about. And yet, I, I see very little in the law uh, nothing really that is going to get at the real problem, which is rising prices. There, there's some good aid policy in terms of increasing Pell Grants, kind of doing some stuff with private student loans, um, expanding Pell Grants to, to the summer. That, that's all great, but that's, that's not the problem. The problem is rising, rising price, and, and there's really no amount of money that the government can throw into aid programs that higher education can't swallow up by increasing prices. I think the, the evidence of the last 20 years are, um, makes that clear. Um, and, and actually, I think that the way we get, that, get at that is to look at some of these other things, um, uh, most specifically looking at learning, which is, which is uh, throughout the policy paper talking about the need for uh, more evidence of student learning, for greater incentives for institutions to uh, give faculty reasons to, to be trained and to do well at learning, to invest in advising programs. Um, all of this is really absent from the higher education policy conversation right now. And, and I actually think that leads back around to price. I think that because colleges are not accountable for how well they teach their students, uh, because there is no information out there, their incentives basically run to uh, <clears throat> gather as much money from wherever possible, including from students, um, and spend it as, as a way of kind of uh, uh, 
uh, spending their way up this status ladder that they're all that they're all kind of competing against. And so there's really no way for them to compete with one another um, when it comes to student learning. And so price is everything. Price, price and quality become essentially the same thing. And for the big, the big massive institutions, the non-selective institutions, as they very rightly point out, the institutions that are not in the newspaper, the institutions that a lot of the folks in this room, I suspect, did not go to, um, that's where like 60 or 70 percent of all the students in this country go to college. It's where the vast majority of the students who we are most concerned about in terms of coming from first generation background, lower income students, minority students, the students who are vulnerable, um, who are not earning credentials uh, in the way that we would all like them, that's where they're going to college. These are under-resourced institutions, as they point out. Um, we, we expanded access to higher education greatly over the last 50 years, but we kind of did it on the cheap. We took all the new students and put them in, in lower resource community colleges, lower resources public institutions, and I think we're only now really seeing that that is a limited strategy. Um, <clears throat> in K-12 education, you see big disparities between institutions that serve more well-off students and less well-off students. And we say, well, that's not fair. We'll, 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 we'll bring on a lawsuit. We, we need to, to right these inequities. In higher education, you can see exactly the same financial disparities for exactly the same students. And we say, oh, well, that's meritocracy. That's the way it ought to work. Um, I think we need to get away from that attitude. I think it's, I'm glad to see them calling for the federal government investing in these access institutions, directly in the institutions to help them serve their students better, not just get their students in the door with financial aid, but serve their students better. Um, and then provide the kind of information and the incentives for all kinds of institutions to focus much more on learning than they're focusing now. So again, I congratulate both of them, and, and I hope everybody has a chance to read them. Great, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, Tony? Uh, I have the same uh, reaction to both statements. Paul has done his usual very careful uh, on the one hand and on the other hand. Uh, and uh, uh, the paper on uh, higher education uh, success I thought really was superb and I fully intend to uh, stick at my drawer and pose as a uh, as an expert uh, using it for some time to come um, a couple of uh, uh, I'm gonna do on the other hand on on Paul's paper uh, um, and that is that I think um, to say that the returns to higher education have been flat um, uh, is is a balanced view, but I'm not sure that it's entirely accurate. And that is that uh, even if you look at Paul's own data, which is aggregate, male, female, all jobs everywhere, uh, good and bad and different, you get a 20% increase in uh, college uh, wages since 73. Uh, you get a similar increase, I think, for some college. I couldn't do that calculation fast enough. Uh, and in the differential between college uh, and uh, high school, you get a 20% increase as well. Now, 20% uh, is good enough, but I think it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really um, fully uh, state the differences that have in fact occurred. If you look, we have to some extent is the dangers of aggregation here, um, the sort of tyranny of averages, and that is that underneath this data, uh, if you look at the uh, earnings returns uh, in terms of the overall growth of the labor force, first of all, uh, that is, we've gone from a labor force in 73, which is the base year here, somewhere, it was a labor force in those days, somewhere between a 90 and 100 million workers. 
I'm not sure it broke 100. Um, uh, both of us were working economists in 73. So, uh, and in, uh, we're presently looking at a workforce that's somewhere around 150 million. So you've got a 50 million to 60 million increase in the number of workers in America. Fully half of those uh, have uh, at least some college, uh, maybe more. Uh, and the economy absorbed them all and at the same time improved on average the earnings of those people by 20%. Now, if that isn't demand for college, I don't know what is. If demand was flat, and I know Paul doesn't mean this in sort of the street level uh, notion of flat, but if it were flat, uh, if earnings to college were the same now as they were in 73, and there was no more room for college graduates, the earnings would have declined precipitously uh, with an increase of, of 30 million or so uh, people with some college in the workforce. That is, the American economy uh, on trend is, is absorbing more and more uh, college-level workers, and I see no uh, end in sight on the demand. Um, there is some issue about the demand, the, B, the wages in the aggregate for BAs between 2000 one in 2006 or seven have actually declined slightly. I think in hourly wages, it's about three dollars. Uh, and the uh, but if you take it back one year to 1999 and compare that to 2007, it's actually increased. So a lot of this is about picking your years when you're in these arguments. So you know there is a uh, I think the the demand for higher education is robust and getting stronger. The BLS numbers, in terms of their ability to show increases in demand for higher education, are fundamentally flawed. And that is the way BLS does this work, uh, which is precise and rigorous, uh, but much too superficial. That is, BLS is about occupations and about wages. It's not about education. Uh, NCES is about students and institutions and courses. It's not about wages and occupations. So most of the information that's of any value in the policy process falls somewhere on the mall between those two institutions and is essentially not produced. Uh, if you look at the BLS projections, uh, what you see is they have a rule, uh, which is when they estimate the education uh, required for a particular occupation, they eliminate any education level, and all occupations have many education levels in them when you actually look at the incumbents and the jobs. They eliminate any occupation level with less than 20% of the occupation from a particular education uh, um, uh, uh, degree level. So if it's 19% graduate, 19% BA, you throw away that 38% of the occupation, and you call it uh, a some college occupation. They do the same thing at the other end. If it's 20, if it's 19% dropouts, they throw out the dropouts and only count the high school. So uh, it is a process, one in which uh, my center is involved pretty heavily at the moment, of trying to sort all this out and see what it actually means. But in the end, I think it's pretty clear. And the reason it's clear is looking backward at the BLS data, they always grossly underestimate. If you look at the actuals, compared to their projections, they always grossly underestimate skill demand. They also don't do much with things other than degrees. Uh, and one of the problems with this kind of data, again, is aggregation. Uh, and here, here, Paul and I are in absolute agreement. We would be. We're trained to be. 
and that in the end it really is market value that should drive this uh, policy system. And if you look underneath, what you see is the variation within degree levels in earnings or earnings potential is even greater than the differences between degree levels. So I can give you, uh, I know, because we run the data, that a male with an engineering certificate will make more than females all, way, all the way through master's degrees and will make more than males with degrees in social science, art, divinity, uh, that is BA degrees. And I'm not talking about A's here, I'm talking about certificates. The AAs earn substantially more. So the, it is in a, one of the things I think uh, going forward that's crucial on this issue, because it is a crucial issue, that is, uh, what's the economic value of, of post-secondary education, is the devil's in the details here. And we really don't have systems in place uh, to, to track those details. Ultimately, what we want is real-time information. Government data is always 18 months old at best. Uh, we do have the capacity to build monster.com for all Americans whenever we want. There are four million job openings in America every day. We kill about seven million jobs every three months. We add about seven million jobs at the same time. Depending on which is greater, we get a net add or a net uh, decline. Uh, but in the end, it's that churn that drives the American economy. And in the end, somebody in school should know what's going on in that churn. That's how they should decide from an economic point of view, not an educational point of view, whether or not they take that course in engineering or that course in social work or that course in, uh, uh, in math. So that's uh, one, I, that is a much longer conversation. Both Paul and I are involved in that. Uh, my bias, in, in, it, uh, I think you stated uh, very clearly, Kevin, and that is that we have in the United States a choice, but three, three instruments uh, for progressive policy. One is the welfare state in which we give people income, access to health care and the like, and the government pays for it, Social Security. Uh, the other is uh, that we do what the Europeans do to an extent and organize people's lives around their work and give them power in their work. Unionization, that would be in America, or a guild system. That is a weak system in the United States, relatively speaking. The third alternative is to use education to leverage opportunity. Americans want to do that because it, does, it allows you to allocate opportunity without denying individual responsibility, at least in concept. One other point, and I thought it was the most important point in, uh, the, in the second paper, and that is that what uh, I, your recommendation number one is essentially a recommendation for institutional aid, the way I interpret it. Uh, and I think that's something that has to be up on the table. The student aid system is no longer capable of funding post-secondary education in America, especially those missions targeted on low-income uh, students that cannot be market-driven. They will not pay for themselves or adult basic education, uh, extra help for people who need remediation, and so on. Student aid, uh, uh, nor will it drive a career and technical education system of any quality. Student aid works for politicians because it dials direct to the voter. But we've come to a point where the institutional health of American post-secondary education uh, requires uh, some kind of institutional support. Uh, that wasn't the case when we began all this 30 years ago. Thanks.
first I'd like to give uh, the panelists an opportunity to respond to either, you know, a, a Paul or Yasupa to respond, and then I have a couple questions, and then we'll open it up. Sure. I, I'll make a couple. I'm turned on, right? A couple of comments. First, actually, on, on this goes to, I think, what would be the general discussion on, on Kevin's comments on, on, on Yasupa's paper. You actually said two things that I thought were both interesting but not necessarily internally consistent. One is you said that we, uh, education institutions will soak up whatever, we're not focusing on price, they'll soak up whatever financial aid gets sent their way and just raise the price, implying that they're charging too much. I mean, that's kind of the subtext. But then you also commented about all, the, all these under-resourced institutions, right, which aren't, under-resourced means they're not getting enough money. So that implies you want them to soak up the, call, the, the extra money because they're under-resourced. So I, I think the, the resolution of that, of course, is, which I'm sure both of you know much better than I, is it's not really price soaking. It's thinking about how they spend their money, right? You want them to have more money. You want them to soak. So the kind of, the kind of complaint that these people are just, you, you know, increase financial aid and professor salaries will go up or whatever it is. I mean, that's not quite what you're talking about, right? You're, you're talking about a more sophisticated argument. But the way you posed it, it seemed to me, was internally inconsistent. Now let me, let me talk about Tony. <laughs> so, so, so Tony says, hey, since 1973 to now, there's been this huge increase in the wage data. So what are you talking about, Osterman? And not only that, but it's come in the face of a big increase in supply. So if wages are going up, well, you know, the, while, while supply is increasing, if this price differential is rising, there must be a huge increase in demand. So really, what are you talking about, Osterman? So that's okay, except for two things, right? If you look at the situation today, I mean, it's simply a fact that the, that the college, the advantage to college relative to high school, once you subtract out the people who went to post, went to post college, the, the MBAs and the lawyers and all those folks, that has stagnated for five or six years. I mean, it just has. So, so what if, in some sense, sure, there's been a huge, you could say, if you want to make this case, there's been a huge increase in the demand for college education from 1973 to 2000, but it's 2007 now, 2008, whatever the hell this is, and, and we're, 1973 to 2000 is irrelevant to our discussion. We want to know what's the story today. And you could look at the wage data, you could, and interpret it as saying, the demand is leveled off. So pointing to 73 to 2000 is a little bit of a non sequitur, unless you have an answer to what's happened in the last five or six or seven years. That's number one. Number two, the, the, po the policy question is not whether my kid or your kid should go to college. Because that person's operating on the margin, right? Clearly, there's a big benefit for him or her in going to college. You'd always tell any individual kid, go to college. The policy question is, what happens if there's a huge non-marginal increase in the number of people graduating from college? That is to say, not about one kid, we're talking about increasing output by 20% or 30%. And those numbers on the margin, right, the today's advantage for that one kid, don't answer the question of what would happen if a lot of them were to drop from the sky. That's a non-marginal question. It's a different question. And and then to answer that question, you want to know whether the costs of providing all of that extra education 
are more or less than the benefits. So, so the kind of quick and dirty calculation is, is not quite right. You've got to be, I think, a little more complicated. Now, at the end of the day, Tony and I agree, right? I mean, I mean, you might say, okay, why do you lose all this hair, Osterman, in proving what we already knew at the beginning, right? <laughs> well, that's what I do for a living. That's why the price of education is going up. <laughs> but, but in fact, it's also, I think, it gives us a better foundation. We understand what, what, what the issues are. And it gives us, I think, a more sophisticated way to talk about you know, the need for, for more edu college education in the face of, I think there will be skeptics in the, in the face of sophisticated skeptics. Yasupa, did you want to just come? Yeah, I want to say thank you to uh, both uh, Kevin and Tony for their great praise for this paper. And, and I'm very glad to see that they've picked up kind of the main points of the paper um, and that, you know, while we think finances are important, and I think they are the forefront of every student and every family because that is the first thing that kind of blows, you know, and gets in your face of how much money will it take to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and obviously it's an important issue to tackle, but there are many other issues um, in higher education that we need to seriously talk about, including institutional resources, what happens to learning, and how do we deal with the fact that students don't attend one institution anymore. Majority of them do not do that. Um, as well as that access is a great thing, and we have invested incredible amount of resources in access. And I think we have, we have done well um, overall in facilitating access. Over 80% of students uh, now enter higher ed, but the issue is completion. Okay? Um, and the inequality in both access and completion. And those are the issues that we really need to think about much more carefully. So thank you. Great. And I just want to add one comment, sort of in the middle of Paul and, uh, and Tony's conversation, which is that part of the challenge is, and Chris Mazio always reminds me of this, it's, you know, when you start talking about the performance of a system, it's not, it's a very nuanced conversation. And so it's not as simple as aid policy, like getting at you know, some, the pocketbook of the middle class. And so how do you create the right policy rallying cry that gets people excited about the, this, type, this type of conversation to have the kind of uh, the, the large scale change that we're looking for? Um, two things. First, I want to give Kevin a chance to respond to Paul's comment. And then also, Kevin, this, my question was directed at you. Um, we, we do add our voice to some of the other voices uh, in our policy paper around uh, providing empowering students with more quality information. I was curious, um, I believe you've written on this, but I'm not sure, about the connection between the quality conversation and giving students that information and, in, and inequality, disparities along racial lines and where kids go to school. Is there, do we particularly target information to those, uh, you know, is it more about those under-resourced schools or more broadly? So the, between those two. Well, uh, Paul suggested that I had a, a more sophisticated ar argument in mind, so I'd like to endorse that and say that I do. Um, I, I think there's a couple things going on. I mean, I, I think uh, institutions are raising price because they can. They're subsidized. Uh, public institutions have huge subsidies, but even nonprofit institutions have large, large subsidies. And they're, and they're com increasingly competing now against, against some for-profit competitors who, who don't have those subsidies. And so... Um, they're increasing prices because they're, what they're, what they're, the service they're providing is worth more by, in the end, however you want to look at it, um, and the government is, is subsidizing them, and so, and so there's margin there, and, and they want to take it. The reason they want to take it is because uh, they have no reason not to. 
um, the in institutional incentives, what's good for the institution, um, all runs toward accumulating more resources. The, the student interest in restraining prices, I think, doesn't have a voice in that conversation. Um, the under-resourced institutions, yeah, absolutely. I, I want them to get more resources. I don't want them to take it out of the pockets of low-income students. I, I would like to see uh, more equitable distribution of resources among different kinds of institutions and states and an enhanced federal role. Uh, the one other thing I would just kind of add uh, before getting to your point that I, I was really glad to see, and I forgot to say this before, um, in your paper that you put the, the issue of institutional autonomy square on the table because that's where this argument lies. Uh, we say all these things about more information, um, uh, but once you kind of actually put a, 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 some kind of proposal on the table either here in D.C. or at a state house somewhere, the institutions push back and it's always on grounds of autonomy. And while I think you made the point that that our, our sort of deregulated autonomous system of higher education has provided great benefits in this country. We have an extremely diverse, extremely well-resourced, well-developed system of higher education. Um, it comes at a cost. There needs to be a balance there. Um, autonomy is not an absolute value, although, quite frankly, the higher education lobby here in DC treats it like one. Um, and uh, there are obligations that it's, it's reasonable for the public to make on institutions that it subsidizes at great cost. And I think one of those obligations is providing much more information about success, particularly student success. Um, and when you do that, what you find is that our, our most disadvantaged students are not successful. They're not learning as much. They're not graduating from college. Um, by any measure that you would come up with, all these, these gaps in achievement or attainment that we're, we're very familiar with at the K-12 level, they're just as bad in higher education, if not worse, quite frankly. Um, and I don't think students know that. You know, I mean, there are lots and lots of four-year institutions that graduate less than 35% of their minority students on time. Less than 35%. I mean, shockingly low numbers. Students are not getting those that kind of information when they're making choices about where to go. I mean, some of the numbers are in the single digits. I mean, they are just shocking. And so um, if, I think if students had a lot more information about quality, either their odds of getting a degree or what they're likely to learn, that would put pressure on institutions to compete in the marketplace in those terms, which is what they're not doing right now. Would you like to open it up to the audience now for questions? Please um, just state your name and your organizational affiliation. And whatever you have to say, please have a, have a question mark at the end. <laughs> uh, please, we'll start here, and then we'll go there. I'm Margarita Benitez. I'm director of higher education for the Education Trust. My question is for Dr. Roxa. I was very interested in the findings of your paper, especially because they closely coincide with an initiative that the Education Trust is coordinating along with the National Association of System Heads, where the Access to Success initiative, whereby 20 state university systems uh, serving over 2 million students uh, have committed to cutting in half by 2015 the gaps that currently exist uh, at the time of college entry and of college completion. So we are very much along the same tracks uh, as you are. And it so happens that the uh, four lines of work that we are uh, pursuing right now, uh, college uh, cost management, financial aid, articulation and transfer, and developmental education uh, and entry-level courses are very much in sync with what you are saying. So we are on the same side, and I look forward to collaboration. My question mark uh, comes uh, in two areas. One, our focus is on institutional action. What can systems do to uh, 
uh, address and attain the goal that I just mentioned. And I was hoping that you'd have more to say about that. And as somebody who worked in the Department of Education and post-secondary education for a number of years, I have become convinced that federal interventions are very blunt instruments. And I'd like you to elaborate, if you would, on how do you see the federal government really uh, involved in assessing and improving student learning. I, I certainly, we all agree on the value of that, uh, but I don't quite see the federal government as an effective player in that field. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm glad to uh, see that, that uh, many people are moving in, a, in the same direction, which hopefully means that we will uh, make progress on some of these really serious issues. Um, in terms of what institutions can do, you know, um, the paper spends much more time talking about what institutions can do. And I think it links back to what Kevin was talking about in terms of what, are they what grounds are they competing on. They're currently not competing on the grounds of how many students do you graduate, how many minority students do you graduate, and how many less advantaged students do you graduate, um, and what are they learning. Okay? You're competing on who has the newest gym and the best you know, student center. Um, and I think institutions, um, once students enter, if institutions focused much more on getting those students from point A to point B, um, there's a lot they can do in terms of faculty uh, improvement in you know, in teaching so that students can actually learn. In terms of, lots of institutions are now doing assessments of learning. They test students when they enter, and they try to test them over time, and really try to systematically say, okay, what is happening here? Lots of them, especially those who are at the bottom of graduating minority students, are saying, okay, this is happening. Why is it happening? I, I don't think there is a, you know, a policy that will, all institutions should do the same thing. But I think the issue is how do we get institutions to think about those issues and to say, look, we can't have this happen. We can't have only a third of our minority students graduating. And look at themselves, look at where they're spending resources, look at who is teaching and how they're teaching, um, look at you know, who is learning, look at why students are leaving. Um, and so I think in, in each aspect of you know, learning, of transfer, um, in advising, I mean, how much information do we provide to students? Um, on any grounds, on academics, on work, on finances. Um, it, we operate under this assumption that students are consumers, and they are in some ways, but we all know 18-year-olds, many of whom have had very poor preparation beforehand, they're not going to make good, dis good decisions, good being advantageous to degree attainment, unless we provide them with lots of resources along the way. And we don't do that. And I think schools have, institutions have a lot of place um, there. In terms of learning, uh, I guess the Higher Education Act uh, agrees the federal government shouldn't have anything to do with learning. Um, and you know, it's kind of banned federal government from, from requiring learning assessment. Um, I agree in a sense that federal government shouldn't come along and say, you know, this is the test. We're going to test every single student. What are we doing in K through 12? We should test every single student this many years. This is how they have to perform, et cetera. But I think the federal government has a role in putting pressure and saying, you need to measure learning. Okay? And you need to demonstrate to us that students are leaving with more than what they came in with. Okay? Um, and so it, I mean, it is blunt if we allow the federal government to say, this is the test, and this is how students are going to be tested. But I think it is less blunt if the federal government's role is to say, you need to measure learning and demonstrate that students have made progress. Um, and institutions can have autonomy there. 
in demonstrating how they wish to make progress and how they wish to demonstrate that um, and make that information available to students as well. I mean, they're now saying, you know, do st should students know these things? Should students know how many students graduate and how many students are learning? Um, so I agree that a blunt approach would not be the best one, but I, the low pressure to make these things happen um, and to convey the message that this is important, I think, is a place where the federal government should play a role. Please, this gentleman right here. Thank you very much. My name is Carlos Rodriguez. I'm with the American Institutes for Research, AIR. Um, you can observe that post-secondary attainment uh, uh, self-replicates. Um, in the Caucasian population, you have critical mass of post-secondary, and it replicates. We don't have that in the black population. We don't have it in the Latino population. So it argues for the point about disadvantage and minority. Um, I would like to see the falling from the sky of the 10 million Latino and, and black students graduating from college two-year and four-year. I'd like to see that. I think a question is, would the economy absorb it? Could it absorb it? Probably. Could it be done in 10 years? Probably. The, the, the policy, the question is, uh, in the, the discussion, which I agree with, and I think the Roxa paper also confirms a lot of what we know already about how to, to push completion. But would putting a cost to attrition drive us to move in that direction? What's it cost? What's the loss cost us? What's it costing us? The economic cost for losing six or eight out of every black or Latino who starts? What's that cost us? What's it cost the institution? You know, what's the social cost to the individual? So I'm, I'm wondering if the way to move that agenda, and I think we need to get onto a 10-year agenda to cut attrition in half nationally, but could we do it by fueling it with data that says we can't afford not to? Numbers to it, but I think, you know, there's clearly personal cost. I mean, the students who invest, you know, endless amount of money and not have a degree at the end, um, and it is a cost to institutions, and I think that's why many institutions are worried about it uh, and trying to deal with it, not sufficiently so. But there are costs to students, there are costs to institutions, and there are costs to states who are spending all this money on financial aid for students who don't finish. Okay? Uh, and financial aid and subsidizing institutions, um, and, you know, and there's a cost to the labor market because these students are in school and they're leaving and they're not being more productive if we believe that bachelor degree you know, gives you productivity. So um, I can't put the numbers on it, but, um, you know, Maybe economists can. Uh, I, I think I got some numbers, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's a crucial point. I, I, I think I'd thought, I kind of have two responses to that. One is, as you all know, and this is true of education, it's also true of other public services, output is measured by input, right? So the cost of education from the point of view of the school system is their ADA, right, and what they're getting. It's not cost per graduate, cost per unit of, of reading attained or whatever. And so the budgetary process points away from what you're suggesting in a perverse way, right? So this is the point that, 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 that was just made, that the, the system puts the emphasis on the inputs, not on the outputs. Um, an example, and, and this actually is, is going to, into a policy issue, an example is, is work that I've done in uh, Texas with the community college system and the job training systems in, in, in Texas, where uh, 
the community colleges in Texas, and I'm talking about San Antonio and Austin, have had very serious problems with retention, right? And they've, and they've identified a set of training programs that have much higher retention rates, and you working with the community colleges. And, and the budget process has pushed the system in the direction of moving resources from the low retention into the high retention systems, because the advocates, the community groups that run these programs, are able to say, for X thousand dollars, we give you a graduate, while you spend Y thousand dollars to get a dropout. And so they've used transparent budget data, plus political influence, plus the success of their programs, to turn around the expenditure patterns in these school, community college mm -hmm. systems in Texas, in these particular cities in Texas. So I completely agree with you. It, but it points to a different accounting framework. And it requires you know, some action to force the systems towards that accounting framework. One, one thing I would uh, add to all this, and, and it comes out in the uh, in all the papers, and I thought it was one of the more, um, uh, there's, a, there's an edging towards a new idea here, and that is that um, there are lots of, that is the notion that there's individual preparedness and institutional, individual readiness and, and institutional readiness problem, and I think that's uh, pretty clear. Uh, where the two combine, and I think the balance shifts towards the institutional readiness issue, uh, especially, is among the very large number of American high school kids, um, about 560,000, if you look through the uh, National Education Longitudinal Survey data and elsewhere, uh, but a very substantial number uh, every year, 430,000 uh, high school uh, seniors uh, from families below $85,000 a year, that working families cohort that is in everybody's stump speech. Um, the, uh, what you see is these people are all in the upper half of their graduating class from high school, and at least within eight years, which is when the data runs out on you, uh, they, haven't, uh, uh, they, ha they don't have a two-year or four-year degree. There's a very substantial number of people, young people, in the United States who appear to be qualified by any standard measure uh, to get a two-year or four-year degree or a certificate or a certification or something, and they don't do it. Uh, and that, I think, is, uh, that is, there's low-hanging fruit here. There's, uh, the paper goes, the papers go back and forth between the, the very needy and educationally disadvantaged who need a lot more educational help but there is another cohort that sits in between, uh, which is a, a whole lot of kids who don't and who still don't make it. So I'm not sure that, uh, you know, and they require different kinds of treatments altogether. It's not remediation they require, or very little of it anyway. Uh, we'll go right there and then right there. We'll, get, we'll give you the microphone. Higher education. We'll give you the microphone. I'm sorry. Peter Schmidt from the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, where I hear you talk about autonomy, I can almost hear the war drums beating at one DuPont circle and the <laughs> associations preparing for battle. And I'm just wondering, as a political matter, if you see some way to overcome resistance from these associations or to use a, a dog owner's image to wrap cheese around this pill so they'll, they'll <laughs> accept it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think... Uh, I mean, the, the, the baseline public perception of higher education in America is that we have the greatest university system the world has ever known, except it costs too much. 
Um, we've got to get past that. It's, it's true in, in the largest and most abstract sense, um, but that's primarily based on our impressions of the top 10 or 15% of institutions and the students who go there. And it, it probably is the greatest for them. Um, but I don't think that's really who we're talking about here. Um, it's certainly not who you know, these papers are really focused on. And so I, I just think that, uh, I mean, so we have to, on some level, build public perception of a larger set of public concerns in higher education, which is more than just price, but also about quality, really, in the end. I mean, I think most of these things can be wrapped up in the idea of how well are students being served, are institutions doing all they can do to teach them, um, and to help them earn the credentials that they'll need, and I think the answer is no. And until the public really senses that, um, I think the autonomy argument is going to be very powerful, but when it doesn't, um, it, when the truth comes out, as I hope it will, then that's going to be, I think, a harder, a harder hardline stance to take. One, one, one uh, uh, comment, a footnote on cost. Uh, and it's not a disagreement, it's just a concern. And that is uh, the uh, report that just came out uh, on uh, education funding and cost uh, from the Delta Project, uh, which I thought was superb. Uh, the most striking thing in it to me was the, that is, uh, if you looked at the overall revenues per student, uh, a public two-year community college was around eight grand a kid in a, a private four-year uh, uh, university, places like Georgetown, uh, the revenue per student was, was approaching 50. So we now have a system, and as you pointed out early on, if this was in secondary education, we'd be down at the Supreme Court. Uh, we now have a system where, uh, and it reduces dramatically when it comes to teaching resources, and I think your paper says double. But uh, overall, it's five times, and I'd like to go to a school with a nice gym. But anyway, the, um, <laughs> Uh, if you go see some of the schools that these lower-income kids go to, I think you'd understand that, too. Uh, they're sort of crummy. Um, the, um, the, I think the real issue here, and one of the concerns I have about cost, is what we're going to end up doing, and we're going to do it, uh, is we're going to cut cost at public institutions, and the differences between revenue per student in public and private institutions in higher education is simply going to grow. Uh, the public institutions that can escape that, the elite publics, UVA, uh, UT Austin, uh, UMass Amherst, they'll simply opt out of the public system uh, and they'll do just fine. Uh, but we're basically, I think, in, in a very well-meaning way, we're about to starve American public higher education. Uh, and I don't know how, it, the point is obvious that ultimately quality is the issue here, but hammering at it with a cost strategy is worrisome, I think. Yeah, I think it's probably about how do we frame the issue. And I think the issue is right now framed about institutions, not students. And I think that is really where, where the stake is. We keep talking about institutions do that, institutions do that. Are institutions successful? That's not the issue. The questions are, you know, the questions should be about students. Are students completing? Are students learning? And until the public shifts the mentality of thinking about students, um, I think it's going to be hard to get away from autonomy. But I think if we get away from thinking about institutions and thinking about students, then the move is much easier. And it's not unprecedented. I mean, we have done the um, land-grant act. Okay? Um, we have done, uh, we, I mean, the federal government has intervened in higher education when it has believed it had a role and a mission and a duty. And with the current state of higher education, 
in terms of how many uh, students are entering, not completing, how unequal resources are, how unequal completion rates are, um, we believe that, that it's the same imperative now as it was then for the federal government to get involved. So, so I, I do have a thought. I mean, I'm, I'm now stepping totally outside my area of expertise. But I, I take it as subtext in this discussion, and I apologize if I'm stupid or naive, is that you don't want no child left behind applied to higher education. I mean, a lot of the kind of the subtext about, about federal government standards and all that. But if you look at this, um, there's a lot that can be accomplished at the state level around this issue. It doesn't have to start with the federal government. This goes to her point earlier. A governor or a community group can start issuing report cards at the state level about student outcomes in community colleges, retention rates, dropout rates, right, rates of return. I mean, a lot of systems have these data. A lot of systems have obfuscated these data and don't make these data available. But once these data have reached the light of day, and there have been a number of states where this has happened, then a movement emerges at the state level to, to improve outcomes across institutions. And then the issue of resources comes up. So it actually doesn't have to start in Washington. It can start locally. It can start at the state level. And the point about accountability and student outcome data seems to me can really drive this and drive it in a very powerful, in a powerful way. I want to get this gentleman's question right here. Hi, my name is Jeff Stroll. I'm with the uh, Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce. Uh, used to be uh, the Global Institute on Education and the Workforce. We changed our name recently. Uh, first, I want to thank both of you. From to Global to Georgetown? Uh, no, Center. We just got rid of the Global. We lost it somewhere along the way between here and uh, up I just thought Georgetown was like a synonym with global. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the population, it's very true. But uh, I'd like to thank both of you for reminding us about the important equity issues that are involved with education. Um, I think it's always important to do that. Now I need to sort of put my economist hat on. And Dr. Osterman, I'd like to ask you, you know, in your discussion with Dr. Carnavali about the trending data on the demand for BAs, it seems to suggest your argument that we need to look only at the last five or six years is picking your trend, which is implying that there's a structural break around 1999-2000 to have yourself only looking at that piece. And then Dr. Carnavale, looking back to 73, is saying that there's not, or that we need to look deeper. And I'm wondering where you stand. Do you think there's a structural break, or? No, no I don't. I want to be clear. I, at the end of the day, Tony and I agree, and I'm sure everyone here agrees too, that there is a substantial demand for an increase in higher in college attainment. The gentleman who asked the question, what if these people drop from the sky, would they be absorbed? That's the right question, though, that, I mean, because that's a non-marginal question, huge numbers. Of, so at the end of the day, we agree. What I'm trying to do in this paper, though, is to, is to say, look, everyone has this discussion around the wage data. The wage data are not probative. Right? The wage data are not probative. First, because they may mean not things other than productivity, and secondly, because there has been a trend change in the wage data. So let's get past the wage data. Let's look at firms. Let's look at projections. Let's, let's look at other experiments and evidence. And, put, and so we can feel more confident than we would feel if we had to just live and die on the wage data. So I do believe that there's substantial room for expansion. I do believe that many people would be absorbed. I'm just trying to put more meat on that argument than you would have if you just looked at the wage data. The wage data, if we just had nothing but the wage data, Tony and I could argue, and we'd really have a fight because, you know, the wage data are not clear about this anymore. I want to go with Chris here. 
comment in response to the, the last discussion about accountability and No Child Left Behind. And just this is something that not only in these papers and in our draft paper, but in future papers, the premise of, 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 of the themes of a lot of the recommendations are not quite the same thing. And I think it's important to just highlight that really what these papers are talking about is a premise built around capacity, accountability, and transparency in, in that order. And in a way that I think a lot of accountability discussions ignore the important thing that we have a stratified system and the resources with the students we care the most about in terms of outcomes have the fewest resources to do the work and probably don't have the incentives to do the work well or right. So the recommendations are trying to build capacity and encourage accountability and transparency through quality information, through reporting, through all those things. And those really go hand in hand. And it's a different way of thinking about it than might be built into, say, no child left behind. So I just wanted to say that. I'll take, we'll take one more question from the audience. Th this gentleman in the white shirt has had his hand up for a while. Yeah, Chachin, freelance correspondent. The uh, first is uh, to Dr. Sikoni. Uh, AT&T have a so-called five years uh, initiative for high school success. I think there should more group in the, in the nation have this. Should they get together and uh, someone called in that maybe uh, uh, the this one, uh, the CAP uh, should take this task. And uh, to Dr. Osterman, you mentioned that uh, from 06 to uh, 10 or 16, there are 5,000 uh, production job lost and there are 2 million uh, 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 new hire. I would like to ask is this, how do you prepare the, those uh, people lost a job for the new job? And how do you prepare the new graduate for those uh, jobs? And uh, to Dr. Rokasa is this, uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, should reward the successful institute. My question is how? And to Tony, you have been in uh, education. Uh, that's a lot of question marks. Oh, just, uh, that's a lot of question marks. Finish. That's very important. Okay. Uh, uh, education testing servers. I would like to know that how do you pre uh, uh, improve this uh, testing service so it can be better measure the success of high school uh, and also their uh, graduate. Thank you. Okay. So. Um, Jim Ciccone has left, um, and Paul Osterman also left. Uh, you, you can ask that question. Oh, I, I, won't answer, I won't answer for AT&T. Um, I can talk about the findings in Paul's paper about the replacement jobs, but I'd rather give the panelists a chance to answer the questions that he posed. Jasper? Um So if I understand your question, the question is how do we reward success? Um, Institutional, institutional success. Institutional success. I mean, we already kind of do that. I think we are arguing we should reward success for students. Um, lots of states are already using measures of uh, completion, particularly they're using graduation rates, which are problematic in many ways. But um, to say, you know, you get extra resources, um, or you get extra financial aid, or you get you know, extra faculty lines. Or, uh, there are ways in which um, institutions can be rewarded for getting their students to complete uh, from the kind of more federal and state policy level. I think the greatest 
rewards that institutions can get is by having that information out there and having students choose them. Uh, at the end of the day, the higher education, you know, for better or worse, is a marketplace in which students have a choice of where to go. The choice is very much constrained by resources, by knowledge, by preparation, um, and, and all kinds of other issues. But you know, being known that institution X really graduates off its students and they do well in the labor market and they're learning a lot um, is going to be a reward in the sense of who is going to come to that institution and how the institution is going to be viewed and perceived and attended. Um, and the states obviously have kind of the financial strings to attach to performance if they wish to. Or just, uh, um, the San Antonio question is actually an interesting one because, uh, and I was thinking about this listening to the, to the, the, the talk about uh, AT&T's priorities. U University of Texas San Antonio is a huge institution um, in a lot of ways kind of typical of what we're talking about. Generally an open access institution. It's a regional college. Uh, very large minority mm -hmm. student population. Lots of first generation students. Very, very low graduation rates. I mean, again, th this, these, this is one of these institutions where maybe 30-some percent of your minority students are getting degrees in six years, even, I think, if you, if you put the timeline out farther to eight years, which might be appropriate for that kind of uh, place. A, a lot of students are not getting through with their credentials. And on the one hand, I know they're concerned about that. On the other hand, I know they want to be a big deal research university. You know, the, the, the priorities are very clear. They want to go march up the same status ladder everybody wants to march up, which is to be a big research institution, because that's prestige in higher education. And I think that really kind of gets around to this, this question of accountability. Um, the whole, the no child left behind for higher ed, it's, it's a straw man. Nobody wants that. There's no one seriously is proposing anything that could be reasonably characterized as a no child left behind like system. I think what some people are proposing is that institutions ought to, given their own mission, their own goals, their own students, come up with some kind of consistent measure that people outside the institution can understand that provides a legitimate take on the value added, as you said, from the beginning to the end. Um, the Department of Education tried to kind of push on that through the accreditation process. Uh, the universities went up to the hill and made it illegal in, in the version of HEA that was passed two weeks ago. So that shows you sort of where the conversation is right now. And, and we've, we've got to do better than that. There's a huge distance between that and some kind of NCLB system, which no one wants and will never happen. I think accountability, as in almost all these performance issues, especially the public ones, comes down to some mix of regulation and deregulation. Uh, that is, uh, one never does one without the other, and that's usually the mistake to do one without the other. Uh, and the issue is, what new kinds of regulation uh, should we institute? And that, uh, I think, we're at the very that dialogue is very early on. Some of it's pretty clear. Uh, the public and political leadership are less interested in learning and more interested in degree completion, cost, the sort of basic uh, industrial hygiene kinds of outcome measures. That is, how does the institution produce its product more cheaply and more effectively, uh, more degree completion and so on. Educators are more interested in learning questions, uh, although it seems to me that that's the tougher one to tackle in the end is measuring learning. And then, especially in a system that is largely, uh, in its most tangible sense, has become the American workforce development system. So you could measure the effectiveness of higher education from the labor market side much more easily than you can from within higher ed. And by that, I mean if the, there was a stronger alignment and you wouldn't need to do anything in higher ed to do this, is just give the market more authority uh, uh, and have more information on 
uh, jobs and their relationship to economic opportunities and degrees and just forego the fight on the supply side and higher education. Uh, the demand side will have a very powerful impact, as it does now and always has. Uh, and then uh, I think uh, the other uh, uh, difficulty in all this is that uh, the deregulation aspect of this is, uh, my bias is community colleges are responsive, let them give BAs. Uh, they can give BAs for, uh, for occupations uh, that are locally bounded, that is the need for nurses, school teachers, uh, people who work in local labor markets. If the university system is not serving that locally, let the community college do it. We see that to some extent already. It'll make the higher ed system more complex, not less. Uh, but I think uh, we ought to let the markets run where they run best now. Great, thank you. Um, thank you all for coming. I want to wrap it up. I'd like to stay on time. If the gentleman who had the question for Paul would like me to answer it, I, I can do it offline. <laughs> um, you know, one of the, the questions that surfaced when we were writing the policy paper was this continuing discussion about um, you know, accountability and autonomy. And the way that we handled it in our view right now is that, you know, part of the way the top-down model is a very industrial era model of how you look at managing a system. And there are examples, both in the public sector and private sector, of network management. Uh, I'll use a public sector example and a private sector example. You know, Boeing currently manufactures airplanes in 19 countries with 200 suppliers. And they do that not by top-down control of all those suppliers. They do it by, you know, an agreed framework of performance standards that differ sometimes in different countries, but at some level there's coordination along those three. And they use it by managing um, service teams across all those suppliers that help that happen. Uh, an example from the public sector, federal policy actually, is we use it in the paper, is the Golden Gate Recreational Area um, out in San Francisco. 80% um, of its workforce is not federal employees. It's a series of suppliers, a, a decentralized group of suppliers that actually sustains the Golden Gate Recreation Area. And we suggest that there is room for um, public policymakers in higher education to begin to think about a way of network managing the decentralized system of suppliers we have to find the balance that we've all been talking about here, which is, you know, some measure of autonomy or some measure of regulation and some measure of deregulation. Um, with that being said, uh, I think we're out of paper, so if folks want more copies, please uh, go to our website or if, some, if, if colleagues or peers want them. Um, I am here if folks have any questions. I think panelists might hang around for a few minutes. And thank you very much. <laughs>